Welcome, everybody. It's Ryan from The Art of Paying Attention, where paying attention is our proper and endless work. Well, so good to be with you once again. It has been way too long, and sometimes life gets in the way of this podcast, and the good news is we haven't stopped interviewing people. We just haven't got them out into the world. So whenever you are listening to this show, it's been a few weeks and I apologize. And actually, if you are on the feed, you'll notice there's going to be a double header. So two episodes coming out at once. Hopefully that will be enjoyable for you. And I'm so excited today to have Gordon Graham on the show. Gordon Graham wrote a book called The Intrepid Brotherhood, and he talks about his battle in a company where a narcissistic leader was taking down the company and lawsuits and it is stuff of docu-series and movies and films and so if you're a producer or director or a showrunner you need to make this movie Uh, Gordon Graham's story is amazing and crazy and I'm so glad he was able to share some of what he wrote about in his book and just the way he's trying to help people serve companies and serve the world just through his difficult season, difficult time at a difficult company. And so I think you're really going to love this. We talk a lot about narcissism and culture and leadership and lessons learned and all kinds of good stuff. So you are going to enjoy my chat with Gordon Graham. Now, before we get to our time with Gordon Graham, I do have a couple things I want to say. One is I know we have a lot of listeners on Stitcher. And so if you listen to your podcast through the Stitcher app, well, bad news, my friends, the Stitcher app is going away forever. And so you cannot listen to your podcast on Stitcher. So you're going to have to find another platform. But the good news is the art of paying attention is on every platform. You can go to Spotify. You can go to Apple. You can go to wherever you get your podcasts and find a new platform. But Stitcher my Stitcher friends, it's going away. So I'd love for you to come on over. You can even go to my Substack, ryanjpelton.substack.com. You can even listen to the podcast directly through the app. And that's a great way to listen to. And speaking of Substack is where our podcasts and my writing and all the info, all the blog, all the stuff, all the newsletter, all that is on there. Uh, but want to let you know the ways we're trying to steer away from ads and raising money and to keep the show going all that kind of stuff but a way you can support the work a simple way is become a paid reader a paid listener it's five bucks a month and i'm offering some cool extra bonuses you can see all of that on the Substack. so if you want to join up for five bucks a month we've had some subscribers already so we're excited about that and there'll be some kind of behind the scenes some fun stuff some q a some other things and also just feedback what, what would you want me to how can i help you um what do you need what, what, where could i be of service and so trying to make the internet trying to make this humane and helpful uh and uh yeah do do good things so i uh, just want to let you know about that you can support the show that way and so enough of me talking i want to get to my time with gordon graham who wrote The Intrepid Brotherhood, his story. You're going to love it. So enjoy. Well, Gordon, good to have you on uh, the show today. And Gordon, uh, we are the art of paying attention. So you have to tell me, what are you paying attention to these days? (laughs) 
this might be kind of long-winded, but uh, I, I anticipated you'd ask me that question, and so I tried to prepare for it a little bit. Um, during my career, uh, I hadn't anticipated that I might have to work under someone that could be identified as a toxic leader. I didn't think I was going to run into toxic leadership. I don't think anybody does. Uh, so, uh, you know, after uh, I I retired and thought I waited the appropriate amount of time before I recorded my story that's in my book, um, I realized that I still hadn't analyzed who these people are, who gets into those roles, why they're put in those situations, why they have the power that they they ultimately acquire and are are able to exercise over other people. And so I've been reading uh, a number of books on, on toxic leadership, and some of them actually come out and refer to those people as, as psychopathic CEOs and, and other labels. Uh, it, it appears that uh, there is a common set of behaviors or characteristics that can be associated with each one of them. And so I've been paying a lot of attention to uh, to those uh, behaviors and the study of who actually gets power, uh, why as a society we keep putting those types of people into those roles and how it just seems to perpetuate itself because it seems like the, uh, the problem really hasn't subsided much, uh, well, since time began, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. No, these are great, raises a lot of great questions, things I want to uh, get into for sure. And so the timeliness of this is interesting. Um, I just finished a course, I'm doing some graduate work and we did a, a lot of reading around memoir. And uh, it was actually kind of a, this might be a weird way to enter into our conversation, but kind of a, a meta question about memoir just in general, because you wrote a memoir, The Intrepid Brotherhood, about your story with uh, dealing with toxic leadership and narcissistic leadership and your job and your story. And we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but one of the things we we were talking about and wrestling with was just the challenges of writing a memoir of how do we tell our story uh, when we know it's painful? How do we pull up these memories? What do we know? You know, how, how do we know what to include, what not to include those kinds of things? You know, am I going to hurt some people? How do I, you know, all, all these things probably uh, stirred around in your head, but, but I want to kind of start there in a, maybe in a helpful way is to say, um, you know, yeah, why, why now? Like why write the story now? And obviously it came out about a year ago. Uh, or so, uh, depending on what people are listening to this, but, um, but yeah, w what was kind of the journey to kind of get to this point of like, yeah, I really need to tell this story. Cause I feel like this story is important. Well, uh, so it was, uh, unfulfilled purpose, I suppose. Um, uh, the events happened, uh, they were part of my life. Uh, there was an ultimate conclusion. So the story was there. It's just that, uh, I felt like uh, I needed to kind of take a a gentle approach uh, rather than uh, kind of drop the hammer on the people who were, you know, in some in some cases probably unwilling participants. Uh, some people would look at uh, at that situation and go, "Well, well, he didn't have any choice. He pretty much had to to go along to get along." Uh, and, and there was that mentality. I, I thought, well, okay, I don't want to, I don't really want to hurt anybody, but I do want these events to be recorded the way they happened because 
I firmly believe you should not let anybody else write your history for you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I talked to a number of people who lived through that with me, former colleagues, uh, people that I associated with up in the Valley where it occurred. And they said, oh, yeah, um, definitely uh, put this out there. Uh, the Valley, the people there need to know exactly what happened so that they can help prevent it from happening again. And also, just from a general perspective, it should have appeal to anybody who wants to be a leader, who is learning how to participate at that level and wants to avoid falling into that trap or maybe assist themselves to see if they have those types of characteristics and and maybe deal with them before they Mm -hmm. actually create a toxic work environment. Mm -hmm. And it should be a benefit also to anyone who wants to participate as uh, somebody in an oversight capacity, a board member, uh, whether elected or appointed, um, so that they can look for those types of things emerging in their organization and in the, in the leadership of that organization. Um, so yeah, it, those are the things that probably motivated me to go ahead and record the story. Uh, as far as uh, assembling that body of knowledge after waiting some period of time. Uh, there were a number of resources that were instrumental in being able to uh, recall and record everything that went on then and put it into intelligible form so that people could follow it. And it was still, you know, it's not compelling uh, uh, fiction or uh not even a compelling documentary. It's uh, it's really just my memoir. And we had to, you know, it still tried to make it interesting enough to catch people's attention and keep them turning the pages. And, and I think, I think we accomplished that um, especially when you get to the point where uh, you know, we have come back and, and tried to seek uh, I, I guess justice. The, the whole court scenario was probably pretty compelling at least hopefully it is to people when they pick up the book. Um, so just uh, to call out those, uh, those instrumental resources, my attorney that I retained for uh, the entire uh, sequence of events, uh, he, he kept uh, every record, uh, every interrogatory, uh, every uh, testimony, everything that, that they could get their hands on uh, as part of their legal preparations, they kept. And so when I got a hold of him and said, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this memoir and got his encouragement, he said, Oh, by the way, we've got everything left over from that case uh, in our files down at the office. And, and it's all yours if you want it. And you can keep it, you can do what you want with it, you can, you know, use what you can for your book. If there's anything you have any questions about, uh, he said, I'm available as a resource to to clarify. Uh, if you've got any questions about whether or not you can say this or that, we'll try to get, uh, get some legal input on it. But uh, yeah, they gave me seven boxes worth of uh, court documents, depositions, interrogatories, um, every all the research that they had done on the law at the time. So that was a great resource. And then the other one 
that provided a great deal of uh, benefit in just constructing the timeline and uh, and being able to uh, you know recall and record everything that went on at the time was the local newspaper. And they have extensive archives of everything that they published. Um, they were, as is recorded in, in the book, uh, they were not necessarily in conflict with that particular manager during the, the same time that I was, but they were, um, well, not confrontational, but they, they challenged him. They made observations about the way that he was running the organization and his character in general that created a lot of input from the community and challenged him in a number of different ways. And so there was a record of uh, everything that he did, uh, everything that occurred in the organization and uh, provided a great deal of benefit to me to be able to construct the timeline and the entire story arc um, so that was another another great benefit that that resource was indispensable in what I was trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think you're you're tapping into something. I think when people are thinking about writing memoirs or their story is is yeah, how where do I get the information? How do I recall these memories? You know, maybe people aren't around anymore, the company doesn't exist, the people died, you know, whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, it sounds like you had a a big truckload full of, you know, research and information to kind of get you back into that story and and thinking through the the timeline. Um, what what I like about the book and the way you you lined it up is, yes, there's a memoir part to it, but there's also, as you mentioned, there's a a kind of a warning. There's a, you know, if you're going to get into leadership or management or lead anything big or small, you know, learn from these things, consider these things, you know, am I the type of leader that maybe have these tendencies? Because <laughs> I think we all, you know, if you're any, any kind of leadership and it could be you know, on the smallest level le- leading your home, you know, there's, there's this narrative that we believe that we have to be, you know, aggressive and controlling. And uh, some of that comes out in insecurity, especially if you're a young person and you're, you've never done this before and you're trying to lead people and trying to lead them and, you know, cast this vision for whatever their company or organization or mission is um, that we feel like we have to, you know, hurt people or, or, or make sure they get it or, or, you know, cause we got board of directors, we got to think about, we got all these things, you know um, which um, I think is, you know, human nature, but also like to, you know, write something like this, that gives a, a good warning for, Hey, just be aware of these things. These can, we can all fall into these traps very easily, um, whoever you are. And, um, and, uh, I was thinking as I was getting ready to talk to you a little bit is, um, the, the show succession. I don't know if you've been watching that or heard of that on, uh, HBO. And it's, it, it really is like a meditation on, you know, this very fictionalized family, but this powerful family that are just a bunch of narcissists and <laughs> running this media company and, um, but it, I, the more I've watched it, I've realized it's really just a warning. It's a, it's a meditation on, Hey, it's don't fall into this. Like this doesn't go anywhere good, you know? Uh, and, and so, uh, so yeah, so I imagine you, you probably were, were dealing with a lot of that. It was like, what, what is this supposed to be? Like, it's my story, but is there more to it? So as you were kind of, um, a long winded way to say, putting this together, um, how were you, you know, had you written anything before? How, were you thinking about, these lessons you want to include, obviously you have your story in there, but like how, when you're starting to kind of like put it together, what, what was kind of the process of actually like outlining it out kind of direction, all those kinds of things. 
So uh, probably everybody faced with that uh, decision uh, whether or not to record a story like that deals with uh, the same kind of issues. Uh, the first one I had to deal with was whether or not I thought I could write it myself. Hmm. And, and the only thing I had done prior to that was, well, research papers for graduate work. <laughs> and that had been some time before that. So even though I, I feel pretty confident in my capability to put something like that together and, you know, just my general knowledge and vocabulary, I think it would have taken me forever uh, since I didn't have any experience, you know, constructing a, a story timeline, story arcs, uh, everything else I had done up to that point was research related and relying on other people's material a great deal. So uh, I made the decision to look for a ghostwriter and went through that process. Uh, the individual that I ended up working with, it was a great collaboration. Uh, we had a great time, uh, became, you know, at least uh, professional friends uh, through that process. And we've kept in touch. Um, and I think he did a very good job. He, he was good at his craft and provided me with what I expected. And so that was a, that was a successful relationship. Uh, so just, uh, so people know most of, uh, the text, most of the wording in that book, uh, is his, uh, you know, just from, uh, I guess, a, a final uh, draft submission perspective. He wrote, he wrote that book. I'm the author. Uh, he, was, he was the co-writer or the writer of pretty much everything in there. However, I had extensively edited most of what he produced. Uh, he would interview me. I would submit um, supporting documentation. He would use that to do each chapter and then submit it to me. And uh, there was, you can well imagine, uh, a lot of stuff that I had to correct or change. Um, and that's no, no failing on his part. It's just that, you know, I lived through it. And so I had to, to make sure and make everything accurate. Um, he accommodated most of my edits, uh, pushed back on a little bit of stuff. But like I say, it was a collaboration. And so we had professional respect for each other and it ended up being, being what it was. Um, but that's how I got it done within the time frame that I wanted to accomplish it. Otherwise it would have taken me, uh, a lot longer. I don't know how I'd probably still be working on it right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, 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 you know, I, I can't recommend that, uh, method, to everyone, but uh, if you get a good ghostwriter and you want to get something done within a certain frame of time, as long as you still have control and most of them respect that, um, I think you're going to get the product that you want. And I think mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. No, I think I think it takes great humility to to realize like I I don't think I can put this together myself, but it's still your story. And I think that's the I think when people hear ghostwriting, they think like you know you're just kind of a passive observer. Here's an idea, go for it. You know, I'll approve it. But yeah, it's it's your story. It's your editing. It's your you know interviewing, being interviewed hours and hours and hours. Uh, you know, and then them kind of just putting it together for you. And uh, 
Yeah. And I think that's, that's important. I, I think a story like this too is very unique because I think there's a lot of details uh, that's, it's not just, you know, telling a story of, you know, when my marriage fell apart, you know, that I could probably, you know, rehash or what have you, but, but, you know, there's a lot of people, there's technical things, there's, you know, information that you need to get right. And, and, and all that, 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 you know, you, you mentioned, you know, court, court hearings and, and, and all that. So it's a very unique story. And, and I don't want you to sell yourself sh- short, Gordon. I know you said your story might be boring, but the reviews are really good. And, you know, some have said this needs to be a Netflix or an Amazon show, <laughs> um, which, you know, as I've, what I've read too, it's like, yeah, I think there's just a, a, a unique, um, painful, but also, you know, in many ways, exposing some toxic leadership that needed to be exposed and, and a good outcome, you know. Um, and so uh, so my question would be on that score would just be, you know, as you and, and not to get too, you know, woo woo about it. But um, but but obviously, uh, you know, when we think about memoir is the big, one of the big questions about memoir is when do you write it? Do you write it eight months after it happened? Do you write it eight years after it happened? Do you write it 30 years after it happened? Um, because there's some wisdom in that, you know, it's, are you too close to it? Are you too angry about it? Are you, you know, um, so the timing of it obviously can matter. Sometimes it's people are too far away from it or maybe too close to it. Um, but yeah, what were some of the things that just in your own story, your own heart, your own soul, whatever language you want to use that, um, was it, was it painful bringing these things up again? Cause it sounds like it was, you know, quite a few years after the fact, um, obviously you had some space from it. Um, but yeah, what did it? What did it do in you? And I don't want to answer that for you, but yeah, was there anything that was, was it hard to do? Was it, did you feel like it was therapy? Uh, yeah. Talk to us about that a little bit. So I think in the end um, it was, it was more therapy than anything else. Um, and it wasn't hard. It wasn't painful. Uh, my wife and I had a lot of conversations about the material that I uncovered that, uh, that sparked memories and, you know, the specific things about what uh, we lived through and and what we had to do to change our lives and our lifestyle uh, because of that, uh, whatever you want to call it, persecution of what they had done to us. Hmm. But um, outside of that, it was it was more therapy than anything else. And one of the things that uh, John, my ghostwriter, and I uh, found ourselves doing is 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 laughing, uh, gasping, laughing. Um, uh, you know, just uh, expressing a lot of uh, wonder and uh, you know, just confusion about how any organization could devolve into that situation and and treat people that way. Uh, and it wasn't from a, a, you know, perspective of pain at that time, uh, because it had been, you know, so long, if you want to put it in that, that, uh, terms, uh, it was more just, oh yeah, uh, this is what happened, uh, at this point. And, you know, John, John would say, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> uh, it, it was like, I know I've expressed this a uh, number of different times. And I think I put it at the end of the book where he would interview me for a while and I would say something and there was a big long pause and it was as if his jaw had dropped on the floor and he'd come back and say, I, I can't believe it. Uh, you know, it's an incredible situation. Why, why do organizations let that, 
you know, let them uh, themselves get into this this position. And why do they keep hiring people like that? Um, so, no, it, it wasn't extremely painful. A uh, couple of things that I think I mentioned early on in our conversation here that that one of the things that that I had uh, committed myself to was taking a rather gentle approach to this. I didn't want to assassinate anybody. Uh, although my wife probably would have, but uh, I, I didn't, uh, I decided I, I really didn't want to hurt anybody, uh, by revealing these things. And I say that because most of the people in the Valley up there had their own perceptions or perspective about how these events, these events transpired and, and the ultimate conclusion of it. Uh, they didn't, they didn't know everything. Let's put it that way. And so mm-hmm. I just wanted the accurate, complete story to be put out for general consumption. So people could know and would know exactly what was going on and what happened to, to me and other people, uh, the ones that worked for me and, and stood up, uh, you know, alongside me and were also persecuted. And then the other people, the, the other members of the, the brotherhood who, who exited, who were in similar positions that I was in different departments and saw the same thing going on and tried to protest and for one reason or another found themselves uh, surplus to requirements or no longer needed at the organization. Hmm. Um, Anyway, so I waited long enough to where I thought um, most people that I was going to mention in a less than positive uh, light in this story were approaching the end of their careers and that anything that I revealed uh, wasn't likely to, to hurt them, uh, you know, as a result of the story. And it worked out that way. Um, you know, I, I stayed in touch with some folks up there at the company and find uh, to, to find out who was doing what, if they had progressed, if if anybody had left, uh, where they were now, that type of thing, and 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 just felt pretty confident that I could go ahead and write this uh, without really damaging anybody's reputation or careers. It wasn't necessarily. Uh, a major objective of mine to not uh, do that. It was just, uh, it was just, I was conscious that I didn't really want to, you know, to, to hurt anybody uh, who had, who had participated, like I said, initially, perhaps uh, unwillingly, but they didn't have any choice. No, I think there's, yeah, there's, I think another just great wisdom in that of, you know, thinking about the whole picture. Obviously your story is very unique. There's a company involved. There's lots of people. It's not just an isolated, you know, you telling your story about your father or something, you know, um, that might not affect as many people. Um, but yeah, that's, I think there's some, that's always a tricky thing with memoir. Um, you know, I forget who said it, but you know, they talk about memoir saying, well, you should have, you know, if you don't want me to say bad things about you, you should have done nicer things to me, you know, kind of thing, <laughs> which there is a, tr- there's still some truth in that. Right. I mean, there is a, Hey, this is painful. This isn't good. This isn't flowery, you know, like, yeah, some things were done that were very, you know, hurtful and cost me, you know, a lot of things and other people. Um, now, uh, 
Gordon, as you um, think about this story, um, and you could probably answer this because you've lived it and you know, put this book together, uh, talk us through a little bit, like when when was like the moment uh, or moments when you started to say, hey, it feels like there might be some cracks in the foundation here. There there might be something that's that's off here. Because I, I think a lot of people that go through these kinds of things, they they usually it starts with, I'm the crazy one. It's no big deal. It's fine. I'm just probably seeing things that aren't there. But but as you kind of like start to realize like, hey, maybe something's not good here. Like talk us through that that season, that time, that moment, that month, that year, whatever. Like were you just, because you were talking earlier about like identifying kind of narcissistic cultures and leaders and things, but was there a specific conversation uh, moment where you kind of said, okay, um, I don't know what this is, but this isn't good. So there, there is a particular um, event that is uh, related in the book where uh, I, I wanted to impress upon the, the CEO, who is the central toxic character in this story, I want at the time he wasn't CEO yet. He was uh, chief financial officer, and I wanted to impress upon him the the benefit of integrating uh, the functions in my department into the strategic planning of the organization. The reason I wanted to do that is because the industry was uh, recognizing the value of integrating information technology into strategic planning and taking advantage of kind of the fourth leg on the stool in, in being able to effectively manage and plan for uh, changes in the industry, um, you know, being able to take advantage of something that had been considered up to that point to be a, a cost center and use it as a strategic resource to get things done, to position yourself in the industry to respond better and to provide more value to either your, your private stakeholders or shareholders, or in our case, our public ratepayers. And so I, I sat down and started making this argument, but I had apparently talked to enough people about this. Uh, my immediate superiors re- reported to him and, and uh, he had already gotten wind of it. And some of the things that I had said, I think rubbed him the wrong way. And so he was, he was prepared to answer me before I even got my case made. Um, as soon as I opened my mouth and started talking about uh, possible uh, dysfunction in the organization, if we didn't integrate IT into uh, strategic planning, he bristled and I don't remember the exact words in the book, but uh, told me in no uncertain terms that the best way to, to take advantage of uh, information technology resources as if I got my act together or something. Uh, it was a, an uneducated, um, ill-thought uh, response to what I felt like and what most people felt like was a, a reasonable proposal to improve the organization. And it was... Uh, classic uh, toxic management uh, response or activity uh, 
and it fell right into his persona. And uh, that was the first time that, uh, well, that, that was what actually uh, woke me up or made me realize that that things might not be rosy for me beyond that point. I tried everything I could to, uh, to mitigate, uh, to try to find out um, what he had particularly objected to and to try to have further conversations with him about that, get more input from him so we could just open up the dialogue. And he wasn't going to have any of it. Uh, that's when he started... Um, uh, I guess minimizing my my part of the organization and me in particular uh, tried to character assassinate me and and put me uh, as a direct report to someone who had no technology experience. He was actually uh, from the real estate department, uh, licensing in real estate or something, and. Um, and that individual was given the responsibility to, to make me leave. Uh, it wasn't obvious to me at the time, but that's where the whole uh, constructive discharge observation in the book comes from, where they created an environment where they, they hope it makes it impossible for you to stay. So you voluntarily choose to leave. Um, but uh, because of my my management training, my graduate uh, courses, I I was uh, hopeful that someone in the organization was going to see that this was not the right approach. That uh, taking people who disagree with you and assassinating them, terminating them, making them leave um, just because they they don't get in line is not inspirational leadership, uh, you know, in any sense of the word. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, right up until the last minute, I still had hope that uh, at least someone at the, the board level was going to, to look at what was going on and, and try to open up the dialogue and see, see where things were failing and could be improved upon and that I would be included in that conversation. So some people look at my story and that admission and, and, you know, they think I'm the epitome of the naive Pollyanna or something like that, uh, where I really felt like there was, uh, you know, redeemable qualities in our organization to where somebody was going to, someone in a position of authority was going to, to open things up and, and say, hey, that's enough of this. We got to figure out what's going on. But it didn't happen. Um, nobody talked to me. Uh, I kept expecting to hear from somebody else at the senior management level or somebody on the board who, who might ask the question, hey, do you have any idea why uh, the cost overruns on this software project are so large and why there's so much turnover on the contractor staff and, and why we had to buy uh, such a huge software package in the first place? But, but no one asked. <laughs> they, they didn't ask any of the professionals in my department. 
because the the toxic CEO controlled everything. Uh, it was just an impossible situation. Hmm. So I, I hear you saying it, it the um, feature of maybe narcissistic tendencies, culture, person uh, is one, no dialogue. Uh, they feel threatened by any ideas that aren't their own, um, feel threatened by suggestions, um, which is interesting because, you know, like any organization, like obviously we all have ideas that don't work or, you know, or just aren't great, but if you're not even willing to even talk about them or consider them or, um, so it's basically, I'm the leader. I, you know, I hold the keys to the kingdom. I, I have the last say, you know, we're not even going to talk about this. Um, that seems to be one feature, um, kind of a closed off, no dialogue, um, no willingness to, you know, and I imagine the CEO probably has no background in IT or uh, that arena yet. They they have all the answers. Um, what what would be some of the other like things to be uh, wary of or or aware of uh, when you think of kind of toxic cultures? Um, what other things from your story or just in general as you've learned lived it? I, I should say. So, um, I, I guess the first thing I'd say with regard to that is the the books that I have read. I, you asked me what I was paying attention to initially, mm-hmm. and I mentioned that um, that I'd been uh, reading a number of things that had been recommended to me by people who had reviewed my book or other podcast hosts, and they've been great recommendations, um, and all of them make the observation that there are three there are three primary characteristics or behaviors where you can identify a toxic leader um and they actually refer to them as psychopathic ceos (laughs) i like that uh and they they are uh the first one is uh machiavellianism where uh all those folks seem to think that the end justifies the means. So whatever they need to do to accomplish what they want to, you know, everything's just collateral damage. It doesn't matter as long as they Mm -hmm. accomplish uh, their objective. The second one is the narcissism that you brought up. Uh, And, and I don't think that by itself really makes somebody necessarily makes somebody toxic or says that they're going to be a toxic leader. Um, if they can control it, uh, you know, I, I don't think that that's uh, a, a condemning factor. But if you combine it with uh, the first one and then uh, the, the last one is really the, the coup de grace or the icing on the cake, which is, I mean, true psychopathy, at least uh, in, in the sense that it's applied to, to business or management, uh, you know, not the serial killer type, but uh, just that, that um, I guess, lack of empathy or mm-hmm. I don't care or uh, I can destroy you and, and your entire life and it means nothing to me. Mm-hmm. So those three things, I think, um, if you see those behaviors in someone who has been given the responsibility to run your organization uh, or any of them uh, they could be, and probably are warning signs. You need to look for the others if they emerge uh, or at least take, take the opportunity to, 
to dig deeper and uh, and find out if this person is really capable of of becoming the type of leader that we should have in our organizations these days, servant leadership or inspirational leadership and, and uh, helping people that they are responsible for achieve everything that they can in order to get the organizational and personal rewards that, that everybody should get, including the person who's in charge. So um, as far as, uh, indications of a toxic work environment. Um, there are there are a number of things, uh, and I'm going to refer to some written documentation here because um, I don't have all these these memorized. But typical things are unequal treatment. So taking people who who have no background in a particular function and giving them an undeserved promotion. That's in my book. And that actually happened to me when I just mentioned I was made subordinate to someone who had no IT experience and came from the real estate department. And uh, that was that was unequal treatment or undeserved promotion, uh, kind of the championship mentality where we're going to put this guy in this role. And if he accomplishes what I want him to then he's going to be a champion and he deserves to be promoted rather than um, rather than recognizing someone who adheres to the strategic objectives of the organization um, and conducts himself so that uh, he helps the people that he's responsible for realize their potential and, and what they want to see in their career. Uh, intimidating others, uh, and uh, name calling, microaggressions, embarrassing colleagues or staff. That that was a particularly prevalent one when when I worked in that organization. It was common to try to assassinate someone in front of other people, embarrass them, and you know rather than uh, disciplining in private or having those discussions one on one. Uh, it was common to and supported to uh, embarrass people uh, in front of in front of others so that, you know, you would you would try to destroy them as a person and as a professional uh, spreading rumors uh, in the absence of any compelling evidence to the contrary. Perception becomes reality. Hmm. And so if you start uh, rumors about people, then um you know, if there is no no contradiction, uh, then it becomes uh, institutional knowledge, and uh, it's difficult to try to deal with it uh, beyond that point. Um, I, I did a piece at the request of my self publishing company on on how to deal with that toxic environment or that dysfunction, uh, because uh, they asked me, well, if you were put back in that situation. Uh, what would you have done or what would you advise people to do? And I hadn't really thoroughly thought that through, but the, the resources that I had gathered, the books that I'd read, uh, actually uh, most of them uh, kind of settled on a sequence of events that uh, or techniques that you probably should try to apply to uh, to, to get out of that situation or get your organization out of it, try to cure the, uh, 
the disease, I suppose. And the first one is to you kind of identify the source. And if it's usually coming from the executive office, then uh, that's the first place to go to try to impress upon that individual that uh, there's a better way to do things or at least start the conversation. And hopefully, hopefully they'll give you an ear uh, and, and you can start talking about, well, this is what I've noticed. And if they give you any credibility, then maybe you can nip it in the bud. Uh, there's no better place than right there to try to cure the problem. And unfortunately, most of those people, especially if they've got those three characteristics we talked about, they're, they're not going to listen too much, but that would be the best place. Failing that, then uh, you kind of almost have to take like an intervention approach and uh, see if you can get support from your peers in the organization. And if there's enough of them that are brave enough or willing enough and have noticed the same types of symptoms that you have, then perhaps as a group, you can approach that same individual or at least other senior managers and start opening people's eyes and getting the dialogue going so that, uh, you know, there can be some recognition about uh, organizational dysfunction and, and maybe start the process to fix it. In my case, um, uh, my character had been assassinated to the degree that even if there were others, and there were, uh, who noticed uh, the same type of dysfunction, they weren't willing to, uh, I guess, form this coalition and, and try to approach uh, senior management about... Um, about recognizing the dysfunction and getting something done about it. So I and my department, we were left on our own to try to make these observations. And uh, unfortunately, without that type of support, we got very little recognition for it. Uh, failing that, uh, the third option would be to try to, to, try to hack the boardroom, uh, go and see if you can get the attention of at least one uh, board member. Um, I mean, after all, they probably have uh, review, uh, performance review responsibility for the, to the toxic individual that is creating all the problem. Uh, and they have oversight responsibility for uh, just the functions of the organization. And so uh, hopefully you can get the attention of at least one of them if you point to specific evidence and documentation of dysfunction. And then, you know, perhaps if you accomplish that, they can impress upon uh, their peers at the, in the board level uh, and start the conversation up there and get some, uh, get some momentum going to try to approach that toxic CEO and make these observations uh, to, to try to correct, uh, get the ship righted, so to speak, and, uh, and uh, correct things that way. Uh, failing that, which uh, I also failed at, I couldn't get the attention of even one board member. And there was a lot of stuff going on there, incestuous stuff, actually. Uh, board members and, and their families were uh, 
socializing with the CEO. I mean, he knew what he was doing. He, he got them in his pocket and um, there was no way that they were going to provide any, any support for any adverse observations to the way he was running the organization. Um, so you're at the point, if you failed all those to where uh, you have to make the decision or you, you, at least you could make the decision to, to do what we did in the end, which is go public. Uh, you know, you blow the whistle, so to speak, and uh, make uh, ratepayers, uh, the newspaper, uh, legal resources, make them aware of what this individual is doing and has done. And at that point, uh, there's probably no turning back. Uh, in fact, I can testify there is no turning back. <laughs> uh, there's going to be some some uh, definitive result. And even though we had a, a whistleblower procedure and policy, uh, those of us that used it were denied that protection uh, for uh, indefensible reasons. Uh, but nevertheless, they controlled it. And so we were denied and... Um, suffered the consequences one way or another. So uh, those, I guess that's a long-winded way of uh, describing the toxic environment and the things I came up with on, on how people might deal with it to try to correct it. And hopefully people have more success than we did. Mm -hmm. No, that's really, really helpful. Cause I think you're, you're putting some, some flesh on the bone, if you will, you know, it's not just theoretical, but, you know, here are some things, if you're noticing this, seeing this, obviously, you know, probably every organization is a little different, um, policies, procedures, who to go to boards, you know, if it's a big company, small company, you know, nonprofit, for-profit, whatever. Um, but no, I, I think those are, um, the, the, I guess the, the flip side of that question is for a lot of victims or people that are being harmed, don't have a voice. Um, it's easier just to go inward or just to ignore it or just deal with it. Um, what, what caused you to say, you know, enough is enough. Um, what, what, what was kind of the, the, you know, well, I could just write it out, you know, and just till retirement or whatever. I mean, cause a lot of people do that and they just go, well, I mean, it stinks, but just, it is what it is. Like what, what, what caused you to go no more? Um, it, it had become um, painfully obvious that we weren't going to be able to affect the change that we wanted to. Uh, the persecution continued. The, the toxic work environment symptoms were uh, perpetuating. And there were individuals on my staff who, who were bold enough to stand up, uh, even though my mantra was, um, you know, we, we don't want to shoot a hole in, in the side of the hull of this ship. What we'd rather do is, is uh, patch it up and, and uh, you know, get the sails right and help, help everybody that we can to make this company what it should be and, you know, and get our uh, IT function back in our control that's what I was pushing for the whole time I was in my director capacity. But it got to the point where it was obvious that nothing was going to change and it was just going to get worse. And so um, one of my direct reports uh, very, 
a courageous individual um, stepped up and and went to the newspaper and made everything public. And in order to try to protect himself, he filed a whistleblower petition. And even though everything that he provided uh, as public information up to that point was valid, could be documented, uh, they denied his protection, um, suspended him with initially with pay, but then without pay because he made some follow-up comments to the, the newspaper. I think he went on the radio for a program uh, exposing the abuses at the organization. And uh, so they revoked his pay during his leave and, and actually uh, placed some stipulations on him where if he didn't comply, he was going to be terminated. Um, those things to me were, were kind of the last straw. Uh, I told him uh, that, that if he wasn't made whole and wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, re, uh, uh, rehired, uh, so to speak, uh, that, that I would go public. Uh, in the end, uh, he was reinstated, um, didn't get his back pay for the period of time that he was suspended. Uh, that was enough for me because they didn't make him whole. And, uh, so I, I went public with my version uh, of uh, the abuses of the organization and the manager and the people who worked for him and um, the things that, that related to, um, uh, I guess, uh, governmental misconduct that was the basis for my whistleblower petition uh, cost overruns on a software project that they were put in charge of, and we we were made subservient to. Um, those were the biggest ones, and uh, I was denied whistleblower protection. Um, but but they they kept me around uh, for some period of time, and the reason was because they needed my staff to say, stay focused on, uh, on their project in order to complete, uh, what they, they felt was necessary to make a positive report to the board and their steering committee. And so they knew that my staff would, would do what I asked or told them to do, uh, keep their nose to the grindstone. And that's what we did. We just got work done. Uh, so they kept me around and looked for an excuse or a situation where they could could terminate me, which they thought they found uh, ultimately, and uh, and they created that that scenario and uh, let me know one day that my services were no longer needed, hmm. and uh, so that's what. Uh, that's what uh, precipitated the whole uh, legal effort and uh, all of our exposure after uh, I had left and that direct report who was the initial courageous one um, uh, after he had voluntarily left uh, early the next year. 
we started a kind of the rubber chicken circuit, uh, speaking to local groups and uh, going on the radio. And um, it created a situation where some um, uh, reform candidates came out of the uh, out of the woodwork to run against uh, some of the existing board members. And they stated that one of their objectives was to hold that CEO accountable. And they, they were both elected, uh, you know, rather easily the following year. He saw the writing on the wall and within, I think 13 months of the time that I was terminated, he had left and gone to Southern California and another utility, um, because he, he realized that with the changing board and all the publicity that he'd been outed and his management style just wasn't going to work there anymore. Well, I, I think this is a uh, fantastic Netflix series. So when you, <laughs> when you want me to write it up and I'm going to get some people, it sounds uh, intriguing on so many levels. Um, now, Gordon, we uh, we're going to answer the, the, the biggest question, you know, the, in the history of the world. Um, and that is, you know, obviously narcissism, selfish, ego, maniac kind of leadership people exist. And we all probably have a little bit of it in us. We hate to admit it. Uh, but it just seems, and, and I don't have, just as I was thinking about, you know, talking to you today and your book and your story, uh, um, not that it's more pronounced today, but, um, but you just see it more and more. And I don't know if that's just because we have more media access. I'm not sure. But even with more media access, you think it would be the opposite. Cause I mean, people just can't, you can't get away with it. Like maybe in the past, just cause video and audio and, you know, social media, it's like, why would you even try to be a, you know, a narcissist in a big company? Cause there's just too much evidence, too much, whatever. Um, but as you reflect on this, as you kind of, you know, you get further and further away from it, um, you know, what is the, what is the, the conclusion for you? You know, is it, it's always been there. It's a couple bad seeds. It's, you know, what, what's feeding it? What, you know, what do we need to think about? What, what warning signs, what, you know, I mean, you have laid out some warning signs, but, um, but yeah, what, what, how do you, how do people get away with this? Like talk us through that. So, um, and these are not original thoughts because I've uh, gleaned all these from the books that, that I've been reading on the subject, but they seem to all agree that one of the big things we need to do is, is change our systems, the way that we hire people, um, not specifically, but uh, most importantly, we're asking the wrong questions. We're giving them the wrong tests. We're testing for the wrong traits and behaviors. And um, one good way to try to weed out these people is to uh, to develop uh, interview questions, uh, you know, uh, behavior or characteristic tests, uh, psychological tests, whatever you want to call them, that will identify those, especially the the magic three that we talked about there, um, or at least at least cause uh, people who are responsible in human resources or personnel acquisition to dig deeper and ask questions uh, so that they can minimize or reduce anyway the number of people that, that get through that part of the process. Because 
the 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 people that that do end up being toxic leaders are experts at manipulating uh, hiring processes and telling people what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably the point of the spear. The tip of the spear is that uh, our systems, as far as uh, identifying candidates and and actually you know awarding positions or offering positions to people. Um, better evaluation techniques to try to identify those behaviors. And then there's, there's some other things about um, that they agree on about uh, changing, uh, changing review uh, processes so that they have different criteria and they are more frequent Uh, different participants too. Um, Not just those people that have responsibility for, uh, reviewing annual reviews on a chief executive officer, which would be perhaps board members, uh, maybe other stakeholders, but actually include uh, some people, more of a 360 review type of perspective where you include line managers or staff uh, on, on getting feedback on how somebody at that level is doing. I mean, the rest of us in the organization um, are, are uh, subject to that type of evaluation from every level of, of the organization. So why not the CEO? Mm-hmm. Uh, those two things would probably uh, help prevent or identify at least uh, those types of characters who get into those roles. Um, and it, it's more looking at, at how we continue to put people with those characteristics in those positions of power and trying to change the systems that we use to select people for those positions to try to eliminate the number that have those those bad uh, characteristics or less than desirable characteristics. That makes a lot of sense. I I think what you're identifying is the kind of more foundational pieces, like long before they're ever in that position, you know, and just our systems and how we, you know, I think there's a built-in, what I hear you saying, accountability too, like knowing that if I know that, like I should be thinking about examining my own self and going, am I treating people that way? Am I controlling people? Am I, you know, knowing, cause I'm going to be reviewed on that. I'm going to be held accountable to that. I have people that are under my care, you know, um, you know, I guess the, the, you know, it's the chicken or the egg kind of thing, you know, cause obviously you've experienced someone that probably is unaware of those things or very conscious of those things and doesn't really care, you know, if they are taking on that kind of narcissistic, you know, there's no empathy. They just don't, they'll just do whatever they want to do. They don't really care. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's always gonna be messy. It's always going to be imperfect. You know, there's always people that are going to get through and it's just going to happen as part of living in under the sun. But, um, but no, I really appreciate your perspective. I, I appreciate the the reflection you've done on this. Um, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, we've talked about the craft of a memoir. We've talked about your story. We've talked about leadership, narcissism. I mean, all kinds of stuff. So I think you're going to definitely help a lot of people today. Uh, go get Gordon's book, uh, The Intrepid Brotherhood. And uh, I know it's for sale if you're listening to this in 2023. It's been out for a little bit. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. We'll put that in the show notes for everybody. Um and then Gordon, just as we kind of land the plane here, um, a couple of things, one would just be, yeah, what, what's your, I think everyone that writes something tells their story, you know, you have hopes and dreams of, you know, what might happen or what message gets across or 
responses. Obviously, you've had a lot of good responses and reviews and feedback so far because it's been out a little bit. But um, but yeah, what's your hopes and dreams? And then kind of what's what's next for you? Well, uh, just concentrating on on this book, uh, I what I'd really like to see is is for uh, graduate programs to pick it up as a case study because I think it really provides some value uh, in in that role. Um, I haven't had a great deal of success in that promotion <laughs> up to this point. I have gotten, like you say, some really gratifying reviews uh, from uh, not just from people who've read the book, uh, you know, like uh, peers and uh, friends and and uh, people who have just decided to buy it, who just read, uh, but from people in the industry um, who, you know, I. I don't necessarily consider to be uh, a greater benefit than those individual readers, but uh, the reviews that the people ha- you know, that are employed in like uh, uh, chief financial officer organizations or um, uh, independent book reviewers, uh, they, they're very gratifying. And, and so hopefully that's going to give me a little mileage. Um, I, you know, I just like to see this book uh, find its audience and be successful. And I think uh, that case study uh, scenario is probably the best possibility for that. Beyond that, um, you know, I, I don't mind, although I've been retired for a while and I don't have a lot of current or contemporary knowledge on leadership techniques, although I try to, I try to pick up what I can um, through uh, you know, social media and professional associations and then books. Uh, I'd like to speak. Um, I don't mind public speaking. Uh, I, I would probably concentrate on just talking about my memoir and the events that uh, surrounded that. Uh, but I think that can provide some benefit to people if like a trade association or a board of directors uh, wanted to hear from someone so that they could gain knowledge on what to look for uh, in leadership uh, uh, quality, I guess, then I think I could lend myself to that. Um, Outside of that, I'm just trying to enjoy retirement and, uh, and do what uh, my wife and I are trying to do what we can uh, at this stage of our lives to, you know, check things off the bucket list. Sure. Well, Gordon, I think you're, you're doing God's work in many ways. I think, you know, obviously you could just pack it in and be retired and move on with your life and carry this story into the grave. But you've obviously it's, it's, uh, you know, you're working through the wounds, but you're also saying, Hey, there's something I can offer the world through this story. And I think that's really cool. So, uh, keep doing that. Uh, I just want to say directors, creative people, you know, you listen to the show, get that Netflix series going, uh, executive producers, wherever you are, uh, leadership gurus, uh, come find Gordon and his story. And, uh, we need to get this story out in the world. So, um, thanks for coming on the show. And then as we go, where's the best place people can find you? Uh, so the, the website is www.intrepidbrotherhood.com. And everything else uh, is, is probably leveraged off of there. You can find uh, outlets for the book. Uh, you can actually 
uh, join the email list for my blog. You can find all the podcasts that I've done that have been published or released up to this point, I think are on there. Um, yeah, there's just some reviews and uh, information about my background. That's probably the best resources is just the website. Well, thank you so much, Gordon. You helped a lot of people today. Thanks for coming on the show and I uh, hope we can uh, chat again. Oh, I appreciate it a great deal. Thanks for the exposure, Ryan. My pleasure. Well, there you have it, my friends, Gordon Graham. Go get his book, The Intrepid Brotherhood. I think you will enjoy it immensely. I I just kind of think back on this conversation and sometimes wonder, how did this happen? But I appreciate Gordon's courage. I appreciate him standing up to what is right and what is good. And that's part of it. It's not letting people get away with bad behavior because bad behavior is bad behavior. And so thank you, Gordon, for sharing your story. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for all that you're doing to make the world a little brighter place. Hey, just a quick reminder. Once again, there's no more Stitcher. And so if you're on the Stitcher app, I know a lot of you listen through Stitcher. It's going away in August, the end of August, whenever you're listening to this. So go find the show on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast. Go to the Substack app, ryanjpelton.substack. Get on the app. You can listen to the podcast directly through there. Uh, also, there'll be some special episodes down the road where you can only get them on the app. And so that'll be a cool thing um, for paid subscribers. And so I mentioned earlier, if you want to get on the paid subscriber train so we don't have to run ads and do other stuff, five bucks a month or whatever you want to donate, uh, happy to have you along and be part of the community. And so also share the show if you enjoyed it. Leave a rating review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps us get the word out into the world, get the podcast out in the world, get the stuff out in the world. And uh, yeah, we love sharing these stories of what people are paying attention to and why it matters because paying attention is our proper and endless work. So my friends, it's been good to be with you. Before I go, I just want to say, go make some great art with your life. And I'll talk to you real, real